Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today you can live out your master chef dreams when you find a professional on angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well inside to outside repairs to renovations get started on the angie app or visit angie.com today You can do this when you Angie that. After you're done with our show, head over and listen to the New York Historical Society's must-listen-to podcast, For the Ages, hosted by David M. Rubenstein, interviewing the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in conversation on a wide range of topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped America. What were the ideas and events that shaped Lincoln's responses to slavery? Follow the arc of his ideological development from the beginning of the Civil War when he aimed to pursue a course of non-interference to the championing of slavery's destruction before the conflict ended. Edna Green Medford, professor of history at Howard University, juxtaposes the president's motivations for advocating freedom with the aspirations of African-Americans themselves. The Ark of a Covenant, the United States, Israel, and the fate of the Jewish people explores the nuances of the Israeli-American relationship extending far into the past. Author Walter Russell Mead examines the connections between their political history and the impacts of evolving political affiliations in the United States and Israeli governments today. That's For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify. The Bowery Boys episode 406, How Wall Street Got Its Name. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And... And Greg, Mm -hmm. are you ready to shift gears a little bit here? Um, After spending the past few months in the 20th century, we're going to leave art history and movie icons behind and go way back to the earliest days of New York history. All the way back to the early 17th century, to the streets of old New Amsterdam. Mm. It's those streets that are the subject of today's show, or rather, one street in particular— Wall Street, a single place with a name that has come to represent the entire American financial system. Yeah, Wall Street. I mean, we hardly even think about it today, but when you turn on CNBC or or fire up the Planet Money podcast, mm-hmm. you'll inevitably hear talk of a rally or a crisis on Wall Street. And today when people are talking about the stock market in general, they often refer to it as Wall Street. And of course, there's the Wall Street Journal, the leading American financial publication, which was first published by Dow Jones and Company in the year 1889. But we are going much further back 
to the actual place called Wall Street in Lower Manhattan today, a popular tourist destination thanks to Trinity Church, Federal Hall, and the New York Stock Exchange. And, you know, lest you think that we're going to get all Econ 101 on you here, I assure you that today's story is actually much broader. I mean, not broad street. It's it's a different street. But this is (laughs) a broader topic than just economics. Now, a few years ago, we did a two-part show on New Amsterdam. That's episodes 272 and 273. The original Dutch settlement that was located here at the southern tip of Manhattan. In those shows, we discussed a wall, an actual wall that was built on the spot of today's street. Right. So, I mean, that seems pretty cut and dry in terms of an explanation for how this street got its name, right? I mean, Wall Street is named for the wall. Or is it? (gasps) The actual answer is a bit more intriguing. So we'll be investigating that mystery and also looking at how this one street became the center of New York's financial world and eventually the entire American financial system. There are really only a few reminders today of the the history that we're about to describe on the show. There are a few historical plaques, a couple 19th century landmarks, but much of Wall Street today is really a, a canyon cutting through Art Deco skyscrapers and office buildings that were built in the 20th century. But today, we'll be revealing the early history that lies beneath the street and, and within that name, Wall Street. So I think, Greg, we should really start by describing the mm-hmm. street today. What What is the actual Wall Street today? Well, let's actually just start with how short it is. Okay. It is only seven blocks long, or about one-seventh of a mile, running from Broadway on the west all the way to the waterfront on the East River. Uh, Tom, yesterday I walked the entire length of Wall Street in just eight minutes. Well, you are a fast walker. (laughs) I mean, it takes me about 10 minutes because I get so distracted. But the street is also extremely narrow, right, for a city street? I mean, perhaps because it's lined with, with skyscrapers, it creates this very peculiar effect. It's almost like the sky is being blotted mm-hmm. out. Yeah. So not to get too in the weeds here, but I wanted to mention the streets in which it intersects west to east, New Street, Broad Street, which changes its name to Nassau, William Street, Hanover Street, then Pearl, Water, Front, and South Streets. Okay. Now, I've I've listed those because I want to take you back to the year 1609, when Henry Hudson first sailed into the harbor on behalf of the Dutch East India Company, discovering the island that would become Manhattan, as well as the river, which would later bear his name, the Hudson River. The land on which today's water, front, and south streets sits was not there at the time. These are all built upon landfill. Yeah, when you go back and look at the old maps of New Amsterdam, pre-landfill, you'll, you'll see that the Wall Street that we're talking about at the beginning here of our story was even shorter than today's already short street. <laughs> I mean, you could have walked that in four minutes, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. And don't forget that, you know, these days with Hudson arriving here, these are the days before any paved streets, of course, uh, back when the native Lenape lived here and were hunting and fishing at the tip of the island. Broadway today is actually situated upon an old Lenape foot trail that snaked its way up the island. 
So thinking of topography, it's actually kind of easy to understand why it's placed here because that's an elevation. Mm. Okay, so stand where Trinity Church is today, and when you turn and look down Wall Street to the east, you can easily tell that you're up on a hill, Mm -hmm. the safest and easiest place to chart a trail. In the Lenape's time, you could have stood on the trail and looked all the way down to the shoreline, which would become Pearl Street. And there were no permanent structures of any kind in this era. But even though it might be hard to visualize today's story, there are still clues here and there if you look. But the Lenape, of course, would be displaced by the Dutch who first settled on the southern tip of the island, south of today's Wall Street, in 1624. Yes, Tom. Before there was an NBC medical drama called New Amsterdam, New Amsterdam was the port town for the Dutch West India Company. They were here generally to create a foothold in North America against one of their chief rivals at the time, Spain, which had invaded and settled in many places on the continent and in the Caribbean. Meanwhile, the English had already created a settlement further south in Jamestown by 1607. But the Dutch were also here for beaver fur, a hot, fashionable commodity at the time in Europe and in plentiful supply here in the lands of the Lenny Lenape, lands that would, over the years, through questionable acquisitions and purchases, became New Netherland. And it all seems so simple and straightforward when you speak about it, you know, like bullet points of dates and events, the Dutch came and took over this and that. But what did that actually mean in the 1620s? It it wasn't like they were just planting a flag or a fort. Mm-mm. The Dutch came to believe that they could stake a claim to this, quote, new land if they just had people settling upon it. They, of course, greatly misunderstood how the Lenape were already using and considering the land themselves. But anyway, that was the Dutch's plan to eventually plant settlers on spots along up and down the Hudson River as their claim to the creation of New Netherland. And this was more than just any old job for the Dutch who came over. I mean, in the 1600s, a voyage across the ocean often meant that it was unlikely that you'd ever return to your homeland. So this kind of opportunity to come to this new land, it appealed to to many people who were desperately, you know, seeking out a new way of life or some kind of a new start, even if it was uncertain and dangerous. And why would you leave Amsterdam? I want to go there now, actually. (laughs) Let's go. You know, you needed to recruit people who were willing to risk uncertain danger for the promise of a better life. And so the Dutch West India Company recruited members of a displaced immigrant population in Holland, immigrants from a French-speaking region of the Low Countries, that's today's Belgium, a region called Wallonia. Now, what's interesting is that the Walloons actually have more in common with the pilgrims who settled in New England, you know, in the sense that they sought to move across the Atlantic due to religious persecution. In the Walloons' case, they were Calvinists in a country being ruled at that time by Catholic Spain. Calvinist. 
Protestants. Mm-hmm. Okay, this and this gets complicated because the Walloons are also related to the French Huguenots, um, who were French Protestants who throughout the 1500s and 1600s were persecuted in France. Mm-hmm. And so many of them fled France in search of safety, settling in friendlier countries such as the Netherlands and, and England and Switzerland and others. And many of these French Huguenots would worship in Walloon churches. Uh, but you're saying that Walloons came from a region, a specific region of Belgium. By the period of our story, many thousands of Walloons had fled north to their more tolerant neighbor, Holland, where Amsterdam was becoming a thriving multicultural center. But being a minority French-speaking immigrant group there, many were still more than happy to embark on a new adventure to New Netherland. And so, in early spring of 1624, 30 Walloon families spent weeks crossing the Atlantic to arrive at the tip of Manhattan in May of 1624. They then formed the first settlement that would be called New Amsterdam. Now, today in Battery Park, somewhat near the spot where the settlers first landed on the island in 1624, you'll find a Walloon Settlers Memorial placed here in 1924 in tribute to these first Walloon settlers. Now, I don't mean to gloss over things here, notably the formation of that other Dutch port town up Mm -hmm. in Albany, Uh, but let's stick with New Amsterdam in, in these early days. What did New Amsterdam look like, say, by the year 1640? Well, the town had about 500 inhabitants, and while it was certainly defined in some ways by the Dutch, it was actually a mix of people who spoke many different languages. You had Europeans here, Lenape traders, and some enslaved people from Africa and the Caribbean. But while people of different cultural backgrounds would have lived near each other, the town could not really grow very quickly. Everybody still needed to be close to Fort Amsterdam, which was this walled fortification that had been constructed back in 1625. So they needed to live near the fort because it was still very dangerous to live there. Mm -hmm. Residents wanted to be able to seek shelter inside the walls of the fort at a moment's notice. In these early years, they were actually more concerned with naval attacks and the protection of the harbor, which provided the company with their means of trade. But over the years, fears of attacks overland, i.e. north of New Amsterdam, well, those fears increased. In fact, they would grow much worse thanks to New Amsterdam Director General William Kieft, who instigated a series of conflicts against the Lenape in 1643, which brought great bloodshed to the area. Those conflicts, known as Kieft's War, involved the Dutch military attacking Lenape settlements and slaughtering people and sparked counterattacks and actually managed to unite many of the different native tribes against the Dutch. And there was really no kind of defense for the residents of New Amsterdam outside of the fort. And basically, there were only two forms of defense at all on the north side of town. The first was a direct form of defense. In 1644, a fairly modest wooden fence was erected somewhere north of the site of today's present Wall Street. But a more indirect form of defense 
was already being practiced here, basically creating a series of buffer farms, settled places which invaders would need to pass through first before getting to New Amsterdam. Well, that doesn't really seem like a great deal for the farmers. Uh, right? No. I mean, mm-hmm. who would willingly want to cultivate a farm here knowing really that they had no protection against any kind of attack? Well, those who thought the risk was worth it because it offered something greater, freedom. The Dutch West India Company had first brought enslaved people of African descent to New Amsterdam in 1626. Now, by the early 1640s, many who were enslaved were actually granted their freedom, or rather a, a limited freedom with a host of binding caveats to it, but freedom of a sort. And then they were given land north of the city. 30 total land grants were allotted this way, And those farmlands were located in the area of today's neighborhoods of Chinatown, Soho, and Greenwich Village. And those collected farms were referred to as the Land of the Blacks. Needless to say, this seems like a very fraught compromise to make. On the other hand, the company was so concerned about its own security and well-being that it actually ended up giving some rather fertile properties to these new black settlers. So many of them were actually great farms. Now, more on these settlements in a bit, but I wanted to go back to those Walloons. Ah, yes. Right? Because when they weren't huddling in fear inside Fort Amsterdam, they more or less coalesced around a couple streets in town. Now, some European scholars think that the name... Wall Street does, in fact, come from the presence of the Walloons, Mm. who most certainly lived in some numbers near the spot of today's Wall Street. Well, that's a rather interesting, although somewhat unlikely theory. But you bring it up as just a possible origin story. It's out there. It's one of the theories, a 16th century conspiracy theory, if you will. But we shall not spread any misinformation no. on the show because our favorite director general of New Netherland was about to pop into the story and construct a new fortification for the protection of this settlement. We'll get to the construction of the Wall of Wall Street right after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC 
in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. So by the early 1650s, the settlement of New Amsterdam and really New Netherland in general was feeling a bit insecure. The colony's director, Peter Stuyvesant, had taken over the leadership of New Netherland in 1647 from Kieft and had really been busy cleaning things up and cracking a whip and restoring order. But now in 1652, War had broken out between the Netherlands and England, and the colony's security had become a major concern that was far less about attacks from Native Americans, but rather from English forces. And, you know, from a geopolitical perspective here, the English and the Dutch would engage each other in a series of wars that are called the Anglo-Dutch Wars, starting here in the 1650s. Right. There, there would be four of these wars that would be fought over issues like religion and, and also exploration and, and territory, of course. And the first war began in 1652. Um, now, they would end up being fought out at sea, but of course, nobody knew that at the time. And so this put New Netherland, surrounded by English territory, in a very vulnerable position. New England forces could try to attack New Amsterdam by water, mm-hmm. but you know, as I mentioned, they'd be met by forces along the waterfront and firing from Fort Amsterdam. Like, they were prepared for that. Right. It was only natural to assume then that the English would have a much easier time marching down the island from the north. 
And so, on March 13, 1653, New Amsterdam's newly formed town government, under the direction of Peter Stuyvesant, resolved, quote, "...considering said Fort Amsterdam cannot hold all the inhabitants or defend all the houses and dwellings in the city, it is deemed necessary to surround the greater part of the city with a high stockade and a small breastwork." Are you, are you reading like the actual notes from the New Amsterdam city government meeting? Like what, wh- where did those actual come minutes. from? Yes, actual minutes. Thanks to the New York City Municipal Archives, uh, which has digitized and published the records and in a fabulous write-up of the entire drama that was written by archivist Michael Lorenzini on the NYC Department of Records and Information Services website, which is archives.nyc. And notably, in those records of those actual meetings, as New Amsterdam officials debated and fretted over an invasion, you know, and the construction of mm-hmm. this new defense and who would pay for it and who would do the work, the reason was always clear. This was being done. This new fortification was being constructed to help defend them against an English invasion. So that March, they they met and contemplated designs for some sort of defensive high stockade. Yes. And they went through a few different designs. Uh, the first called for a barrier that would be made up of giant 12-foot posts that were, quote, sharpened at the upper end and be set in line. And, and included a wide ditch in front of it. Now, this would be revised by the city um, when nobody, nobody bid on the project. <laughs> and it would be kind of scaled back to be nine foot tall sections of posts all lined up there. And a builder named Thomas Baxter took on the project. But the actual work of building the wall was done by... Pretty much everyone, right? Like right. both free citizens and enslaved people who were in New Amsterdam at the time. Right. It sounds like all residents of New Amsterdam were pretty much called to participate in some way. In fact, as Lorenzini points out in his piece, in April 1653, the company ordered that, quote, the citizens without exception shall work on the constructions by immediately digging a ditch from the East River to the North River, the Hudson River, four to five feet deep and 11 to 12 feet wide, unquote. So how long then did it take them to uh, to construct this, what's the word, like wall? A palisade is another word they used. Yes, palisade. The, the council reported in its notes on July 28th that this northern palisade, this defensive wooden spiky barrier with ditch, had been completed three weeks before. And it stretched from the East River, which started, as you said, at today's Pearl Street, mm-hmm. straight across the island to about today's Greenwich Street, just west of where Trinity Church now stands. And this wasn't like a solid monolith. Like, it must have had openings, right? Like, like how did you get through the gate? Well, there was a gatehouse at Broadway and another at its eastern edge at the East River, which was called the Water Port. All right. So this gets back to our central question here. Mm -hmm. What did Peter Stuyvesant Call the street formed Mm. next to the wooden wall. So did the Dutch call it Der Wallstraat? Hardly, Greg. This seems to be a common misconception and and quite likely the reason that the city archives published a five-part series on their website back in 2017. 
the Dutch, it turns out, called this het single with a C, C-I-N-G-E-L. So single street, the single? <laughs> As in the single most confusing part of our story. <laughs> yes. Single means belt um, in Dutch. And, and it's the name, as people who are familiar with Amsterdam know, of a major canal that wraps its way around Amsterdam. And, and, you know, honestly, the name fits. It stretched across the island like a belt, yeah. like a cinched belt. <laughs> but the name referred to the wall and the ditch and the street next to it, right? So the whole thing, this whole band of, of things. Yes, that, the, whole, the whole shebang okay. was called the single, the belt. So, ladies and gentlemen, in fact, it's called Belt Street. <laughs> no, so anyway, so it was completed... In mid-1653. And did it help protect New Amsterdam from the British? No. The Anglo-Dutch War was wrapped up the year after the wall was built, but the wall, the the single, continued to stand. Um, However, the following year, in 1655, the colony did find itself in a brief altercation with local Native American tribes called the Peachtree War. This violence flared up when a Native American woman was shot and killed by a New Amsterdam farmer for allegedly taking one of his peaches, thus the name Peachtree War. And hundreds of American Indians retaliated by attacking New Amsterdam, and they destroyed a lot of land in New Amsterdam. But how did they get past this wall? They walked around it. Oh, Stuyvesant and other officials were also gone at the time. He would return and negotiate peace, and they would go on to strengthen the fortifications, of course, and extend the wall then down along Greenwich Street, you know, which faced the Hudson River. Mm -hmm. So they would fortify the wall. However, I would now be remiss if I didn't add the following fascinating detail, Greg, that there was an actual wall Located nearby. A, a wall? Where's the wall? <laughs> a veal wall! <laughs> Over on Pearl Street. As you mentioned, it was a shoreline at the time, and a wall, meaning a wharf or a shore, was constructed there in the 1650s all along the shoreline, from, from Broad Street, which was a canal at the time, up the water's edge to the single, to the belt. Well, uh, a wall? Let's call it a wharf. Okay. Let's call it a wharf. A wharf? was built along the shoreline up to the wall. (laughs) Right, right. But the name of that wharf, that tricky wharf, was sometimes referred to as Deval or or Wharf Street. Mm, Okay, I see where you're leading us. (laughs) And over time, this name seems to have gotten confused and also lifted up and planted down on that other street, and you see the name Divalstraat, okay, spelled the same way, applied to the single, to the belt, you know, on later maps, as if it were an old Dutch name, but it wasn't. Wow. And special thanks to Michael Lorenzini at the Municipal Archives for <laughs> pointing out that, like, Who's on first Abbott and Costello routine (laughs) circa Dutch New Amsterdam period? But, of course, by the 1660s, New Amsterdam did experience another intrusion, a bigger one, an actual 
British invasion. Yes, in 1664. At first, you know, worries had resurfaced that other English settlers would actually attack from the north, and plans were again drawn up to expand and fortify the walls, and including bringing them even farther、mm. down both rivers. And then, in March 1664, King Charles II famously. Decided to seize New Netherland, including, of course, New Amsterdam, and hand it over to his brother James, the Duke of York. And next thing you know, there are warships stationed in the harbor, and Peter Stuyvesant, our stalwart director general, was faced with a hard decision. But many New Amsterdam residents didn't really care which country was in charge. This was a company town, so it was like a merger. <laughs> right, they were so reasonable; they didn't <laughs> really care. They wanted stability. They were also business people, you、yeah. know. So just all that drama was bad for business. So, in August of 1664, there was a peaceful takeover as New Amsterdam and New Netherland was handed over to the English, who would rechristen it New York. Stuyvesant even stayed on. He even kept his property, and so then in subsequent maps of New York, this street along the old wall would be referred to both as the Single and the Wall Street. But the drama wasn't completely over. The invasions were not done、Mm-mm. because, believe it or not, like an unnecessary reboot, the Dutch <laughs> would be back in charge. You know, albeit ever so briefly, in 1673 during the Third Anglo-Dutch War. Yeah, th- that war would reach New York as eight Dutch warships attacked New York from the water, and the city switched back to Dutch control. Becoming not New Amsterdam, they they discarded that entirely, but、yeah. gave it a new name, New Orange. Yes, but alas, New Orange was short-lived. For the next year, in 1674, the war was over again, and all of this land reverted again to English control. But through all of this, I guess they kept that wall intact. Yes, for the rest of the 17th century, but by the end of the century. It had really outlasted its purpose. I mean, the city was expanding northward beyond that wall, and and it was even exp- expanding by landfill out into the rivers, and the neighborhood was also changing. For one thing, there was a new Anglican church, Trinity Church, that was constructed in 1698 at Broadway and Wall, and so in 1699, city leaders decided to tear down that wall. So the explanation of the name has been revealed. Check. So then, how did Wall Street become synonymous with the American financial system? We will answer that question after this. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at RosettaStone.com. Today, you can live out your Master Chef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. 
Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. So in the next part of the story of Wall Street here, we're going to answer a different question. Namely, how did Wall Street come to be synonymous with the idea of American finance? Wow, a rather lofty goal we've set for ourselves to, uh, <laughs> to explain that one, Greg. Sure. Well, we did the first one. I think we can handle this one as well. <laughs> the wall itself is long gone, torn down in 1699. Some big changes occur next that would actually position Wall Street as the central business thoroughfare of the city in the 18th century. So let's start at Wall Street's western end. Okay. And as you just mentioned, here sat Trinity Church, constructed in 1698 upon land sold to the Church of England, the first of three Trinity churches, Mm -hmm. which would stand on that very spot. But it wasn't just a church, of course. There was much land for a churchyard, not to mention other properties controlled by the church, which in 1754 included King's College. Yes, the university that would become Columbia. Mm -hmm. So here at the start, you've got religion, royalty, and higher learning, and you haven't even taken a step, right? (laughs) Now, turning to walk Wall Street East to the intersection of Nassau Street, you would have seen City Hall, a two-story building constructed in 1703 to replace the tiny old Dutch Stadthaus down near Stone Street. And here's the interesting thing, is not only does City Hall, of course, sit on the spot of where the wall was, of course, Mm -hmm. but it's actually made of some materials from the wall. So this first City Hall is a little bit of the wall itself. Wow. Now, inside, you would find pretty much all of New York's governmental offices, including the courts. Even in its early years, it might have seemed a bit overcrowded, a situation which would only worsen throughout the decades. Everything was contained in City Hall. Over the years, they would add in the City Library, which would become the New York Society Library, FYI, a debtor's prison, and even a firehouse with storage for the fire engines. Wow. Part of my research was a book from 1908 from the Society Library <laughs> for this. Um, perhaps printed on pages from the original wall. It's coming full circle. It's coming full single. Full single. <laughs> but this was a tight space. People were falling all over themselves yeah. inside. And it was in this courthouse in 1735 that the printer John Peter Zanger was taken to court by the colonial governor for libel in a case that really sets the foundation Mm -hmm. for America's right to free speech. And that would be the first of many momentous events to arise from this cramped, overstuffed building. Oh, and uh, by the way, I should add that situated in front of City Hall, like everyone who went into City Hall had to pass this, was a whipping post, Mm. pillory, and stocks used in many grim, punitive ways. Let's continue our walk here. As you're walking along the street eastward, believe it or not, most of the buildings that you would have seen 
were actually mansions, the mm. finest homes in the city, and far superior to the housing stock below Wall Street. It's really rather hard to imagine today, you know, considering that there are hardly any houses of this kind in the financial district at all, and certainly none still standing on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. So recapping, Wall Street thus far in our journey was religion, education, wealth, government, and, well, all the other things which City Hall contained. But on the eastern end here, it became more commercial as we head towards the waterfront. Now, remember, a wall used to stand here. So when that wall was taken away, the city built another wharf at Water Street here. And soon, starting in 1709, a market for the sales of various goods. And then two years later, in the fall of 1711, they then made room for one more horrifying trade, the sale and rental of human beings. And so right here on Wall Street and Water Street, which was the waterfront back then, New York got its very first slave market. But as you alluded to in the first section, New Amsterdam already had enslaved people living here. And the colonial city of New York would have many, many, many more. Now, I need to just back up a little bit to explain the particular timing of the slave market in 1711. Slavery under the English was far more expansive and far more cruel than it had been under the Dutch. Those rudimentary rights that enslaved people were granted in New Amsterdam were quickly stripped away. And those farms that were granted to enslaved people in the land of the blacks Mm -hmm. that were north of the old city wall, well, those lands were taken away and then granted to white residents. The public cemetery maintained by Trinity Church was banned from serving blacks, who then interred their deceased in a different burial ground, today known as the African Burial Ground near Foley Square, about a mile north of Wall Street. And I assume then that part of this change had to do with England's role in the transatlantic slave trade. I mean, they had transported millions of Africans to the Americas. And in New York, there were also enslaved people from Native American tribes. In fact, the notice for the 1711 slave market specifically describes it, quote, at which place all Negro and Indian slaves are to be let out to hire or be sold. Colonial New York was critical to the functioning of the slave trade. By 1730, 40% of all New Yorkers owned at least one enslaved person. And as that notice I just read mentioned, a slave owner could essentially rent out his enslaved people to others needing manpower and then, of course, would take all the profits for themselves. So when you read about colonial New York, you do immediately then pick up on the the rather paranoid and toxic mood Mm -hmm. of life here. And, And it's one of the reasons that talking about this era can be so challenging, even though it's so important to understand, because almost half of the city was enslaved, and the other half was worried that those who were enslaved might revolt. And with good reason. Slave revolts were happening all over the Caribbean. Successful revolts. Meanwhile, before the year 1711... Enslaved people were actually sold and rented out on the city streets all Mm. over the place. 
and sometimes they even wandered place to place looking for work. This created the feeling that a revolt could occur at any time. And so in 1711, the slave market was initiated to take all of those people off the street. But of course, these types of revolts did come to New York. And in fact, the following year, 23 slaves revolted for their freedom, leading to the deaths of several white residents, an incident which tightened the screws even further on any remaining rights for black people. Then, and even more gravely, in 1741, a series of fires thought to be caused by a slave insurrection led to the horrifying execution of dozens of enslaved people. And so how long then was this slave market open? The entire market closed in 1762, although by that time it had actually become more of a grain market. But slavery would continue in New York for many more decades, with the city profiting handsomely from it. And even when slavery was finally abolished in New York, 1827, the city continued to benefit from the slave trade indirectly in its many deep-rooted associations with Southern companies and products. So then pulling back for a second, Wall Street, that Mm -hmm. would come to mean the American financial marketplace, also at one point meant some profits derived from slavery. That's right. Now, Tom, I'm going to take us back up Wall Street again to the corner of William Street in the year 1770, And smack dab in the middle of the street stood a statue of William Pitt, erected here the same year as that of the King George statue in Bowling Green Park. Pitt served as a great source of inspiration for those in the colonies who were now battling against their colonial oppressors. Ah, yes. And on this front, things are really cooking up a bit uh, down the street back at the old City Hall. (laughs) Yes, let's go back to City Hall, because in 1765, there were so many things in that building, so much going on, that they actually needed to add one additional story to the building. Mm. And just in time for that fall, delegates from the Stamp Act Congress met here drafting a response to the Stamp Act, which unfairly taxed the colonists. And it was this Congress that reinforced the slogan, which would become an American rallying cry. No taxation without representation. And all of this inevitably then led to the Americans here making a break from Great Britain by the year 1776. And New York was unfortunately right in the crosshairs of those initial conflicts. In fact, George Washington and the Continental Army were booted out of New York, and the city was occupied by the British for the entirety of the Revolutionary War. And, if that wasn't bad enough, on the morning of September 21st, 1776, a massive blaze swept through New York City. Now, whether you want to believe that it was accidental or maybe it was caused by George and his men who were fleeing town. Regardless, the fire was horrific, destroying almost a quarter of the city. Believe it or not, most of the structures along Wall Street were actually spared, except for Trinity Church, which was completely destroyed. And really for many years afterwards, its haunting ruins would sit undisturbed for many years at the top of Wall Street. 
Now, we don't mean to just, you know, quickly breeze by the American Revolution, <laughs> yeah. but really here on, on Wall Street, there wasn't that much going on during the war. Mm -hmm. But after the war, she became the belle of the ball. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the day that the British forces left New York, November 25th, 1783, known and celebrated as Evacuation Day, saw Washington and his whole entourage march triumphantly back into New York, making their way along Wall Street to pass by City Hall before carrying on down Broadway. And heavily belabored City Hall here gets a major upgrade, courtesy of the French-American military engineer and architect, Pierre L'Enfant. Yes. And would be refashioned, goodbye City Hall, would now be called Federal Hall in anticipation of the federal government settling in New York. Yes, because during and then following the Revolutionary War, the nation's capital would actually move around quite a bit. <laughs> it was like a rock band on tour. <laughs> yeah. Philly, Baltimore, York, Pennsylvania. Philadelphia, Princeton, Annapolis, Trenton, <laughs> and on and on. W once the Constitution had, had formally been approved, it would be here in Federal Hall that the House and Senate would meet in the first week of April 1789 and certify the election of George Washington as president. He would be notified by letter down at his Mount Vernon estate. And then as he traveled north to New York, he was celebrated and feted at mm -hmm. every step along the way. Washington arrived in New York on April 23rd, 1789, uh, where he was met by dignitaries and well-wishers who accompanied him to his new residence down on Cherry Street, not far from Wall Street. And, and one week later, on April 30th, 1789, he made his way from his residence down Pearl Street, up Broad Street to Wall Street and headed inside Federal Hall, where he was officially received by Congress and then headed out to the second floor balcony overlooking Wall Street to be sworn in as president. Sworn in by New Yorker Robert Livingston with Vice President John Adams by his side. And for more on this very exciting, if very brief moment in New York City history, we recommend checking out our episode number 220, George Washington's New York inauguration. Yes, it was brief. Alas, New York would only remain the capital until December of 1790. And that is due to a compromise that was reached by New Yorker Alexander Hamilton, who very much wanted to keep the capital mm -hmm. here, and Virginian Thomas Jefferson, who did not. Jefferson and his camp wanted it in the South. Hamilton also wanted the federal government to assume the debts of states that, who were that were rebuilding after the war. And Jefferson, um, whose own state hadn't really suffered like New York, didn't want to foot the bill. And so voila, a deal was made. The Compromise of 1790. While the two, Hamilton and Jefferson, allegedly strolled Lower Broadway arm in arm. <laughs> One of my favorite uh, urban legends. Those little, really were the days. Corny I, little myths, yes. I just, I can see them walking and talking, striking a deal, a deal that would move the capital farther south, and at the same time, the federal government would assume the state's war debts. 
And with that deal, the capital would leave New York in 1790, relocating to Philadelphia, you know, for a while, while they were, you know, constructing Washington, D.C. For about a decade. <laughs> took a while. Okay, but meanwhile, what was happening here on Wall Street to Federal Hall, you know, once government left town, the, the federal left town? Well, it became the New York State Capitol building until 1796, and then went back to becoming, you know, to being simple old city hall, hmm. which must have been quite surreal. It was like, wait, what <laughs> happened? But, but meanwhile, because of this deal that was reached between Hamilton and Jefferson, New York was in a position to really thrive as a financial center because suddenly the federal government, you know, needed to issue bonds in order to raise the money to pay off all of that war debt. Mm-hmm. And you know, where were they going to issue and sell those bonds? Well, right here on Wall Street. (gasps) Leonard Levinson wrote in his book, Wall Street, A Pictorial History, quote, the deal to establish the nation's capital in Washington gave Wall Street its start as the financial capital of the country. The assumption bill brought to $80 million the amount of bonds, then called stock, issued by Congress. These securities were traded by the merchants and auctioneers of New York, frequently for out-of-town customers. Some of the traders began to specialize in this business alone, and these men became the first stockbrokers. But where were they actually working? The stock exchange clearly wasn't open yet. Well, it was pretty haphazard at the beginning. I mean, they were conducting trades, you know, in offices and coffee shops and even outside on the street. So in March 1792, to establish some order here, a group of brokers held a meeting at 63 Wall Street, and they they agreed to only do business with each other, and they set rules about commissions, you know, and other ways to do business. And this agreement that they signed on May 17th, 1792, about two dozen of them, two dozen brokers signed, was named the Buttonwood Agreement. Uh, named after a sycamore tree, also called a buttonwood tree, uh, which was located just out from where they were in front of that building on the street. And it was actually, it had been underneath that tree where some of the trading had been done before. Not necessarily under that tree, but around the tree. But the, the trading itself would soon be taking place starting the next year, just two blocks east of here, at the, um, at the corner of Water and Wall Street, when a new coffee shop called the Tontine Coffee House opened. And these brokers would then base themselves here at the Tontine. That's amazing because it's, it's sort of like everyone working out of the coffee shop today. It's very relatable. I mean, and there's, a, there's like a Joe and the Juice, I think, on that corner or, or very nearby it. Across from a La Cologne. <laughs> yeah. That's true. <laughs> Yes, it's very relatable, except that at the time it was an entire financial industry working out of the same cafe. Oh, but were these traders just dealing in government bonds? No, other types of stocks, too. Soon they were trading in the first private commercial bank in the U.S., the Bank of North America, and soon Hamilton's Bank of New York, which formed just two years later in 1784 nearby on Pearl Street and then soon moved to 48 Wall Street. And, of course, soon there was yet another competing bank that had been started by Aaron Burr, the bank of the Manhattan Company. And soon they were also trading in commodities as well, things like cotton. 
So by the end of the 18th century here, right, we, we started the story with a palisade, mm-hmm. but now there's like a thriving industry. It sounds like Wall Street has really changed. I'm hearing a lot of bank names. Well, New York was changing, right? It had grown to a population of more than 60,000 people by 1800. And like you mentioned, you know, where there had been wealthy families living along Wall Street, families Mm -hmm. like like Alexander Hamilton's in these beautiful mansions and townhouses, these families were moving uptown to new homes, you know, along Broadway, in other areas in the blocks north of here. And their, their homes were replaced or simply occupied by these new banks and insurance companies and financial institutions that were making up this new financial sector on Wall Street. And it wasn't just residents who were moving uptown, up the island as well, because the city government was on the move too. Plans were announced in 1802 to construct a new city hall that was, (laughs) thankfully, larger (laughs) and grander, farther up Broadway, and a, a cornerstone was laid there on May 26, 1803. And when that project was completed in 1812 and that city hall opened, the very same city hall that we have today, the old federal hall here on Wall Street was vacated. That old used up building with its historic balcony, Mm. which likely included stones from the original wall. Remember that detail? All of it was sold at auction for $450. What? <laughs> Compare that to today's real estate market. That well, the land under it went for thirty-five thousand, but yeah, the, the building was a steal, and and really was just sold for scrap and materials, uh, because that same year, eighteen twelve, it was demolished. Um, although they did save the balcony railing and the floor, it was preserved and are still today on display. But the building that would replace it and which still stands there today was built as the U.S. Customs House for the Port of New York. But construction on that building did not begin until 1834, and it wouldn't be completed and open until 1842. And I should add that that building today is called Federal Hall. But by 1842 is when it opened? Yes, 1842. Well, by this time, the character of Wall Street had really changed. Mm. But that's way outside of our story today. We're only telling the early history. Yes, jumping back to the demolition of Federal Hall, rewinding to 1812, that same year, of course, there was a pretty big war, the War of 1812. The government needed to sell even more government bonds to fund the war effort. Plus, there were other new financial institutions and insurance companies, all with securities and stocks to trade. And these dealers for all of these things were still working out of that old coffee shop? They were, believe it or not, until 1817 when they upped their game and they took on a new operating agreement and created a new formal organization called the New York Stock and Exchange Board. And they started working out of an actual office on or around Wall Street. They actually started working out of a WeWork. <laughs> a V-Work. A, a V-Work? A v- uh, no, no. They started working out of actual offices, you know, around, they would end up on Wall Street. And that organization, the New York Stock and Exchange Board, mm-hmm. would simplify its name over the years. They would 
lose an and over there, we'd lose the board over there, and simply become the New York Stock Exchange. And the exchange moved into its current location in 1865 at Broad and Wall, and into its current building, which was designed by George Post in 1903. And so when you walk by it today, I would encourage you to turn down Broad Street to to really take in its Beaux-Arts beauty and look up at its six columns and classical pediment with statuary. And as you take that all in and and cheer on the fabulous sculpture of the Fearless Girl uh, by Kristen Visbaum, which has been defiantly facing the exchange since 2018... When you face it, just imagine all the history that has happened inside those walls and here outside in this concrete and marble canyon of institutions. Imagine the deal-making, the celebrations and the mergers, the panics. And then note the lone piece of nature standing there. One single tree, a symbolic American sycamore, a buttonwood, stands today outside the front doors of the Stock Exchange on Broad Street to remind you of its humble beginnings more than 200 years ago. Please visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for images of many of the things spoken about in today's show. And we'll also have links to many Bowery Boys episodes that relate to several of the themes brought up, including episodes on New Amsterdam, the inauguration of George Washington, and the African burial ground. We want to thank those who support the show on Patreon.com, where for a small monthly contribution, patrons have access to all sorts of things, including patron-only Bowery Boys podcasts, early announcements of upcoming events, and, and even cool exclusive merchandise. It's all there waiting for you at Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. And hey, the Gilded Gentleman podcast has has been cooking up some fascinating new shows that we think that you'll love, including the story of Isabella Stewart Gardner and mm. her famous Boston Museum, and one on the Gilded Age's most fabulous parties. And get this, arriving next week, believe it or not, the art of hooking up Ooh. great courtesans of 19th century Paris. Oh la la! That is the Gilded Gentleman podcast. Find it on all the best podcast players. And be sure as well to head over to BoweryBoysWalks.com to see the wide variety of walking tours that our expert guides lead around New York City, midtown, downtown, uptown. We've got a tour for you. Getting ready for spring. It's perfect weather to walk around, to combine your two favorite things, walking and New York history. (laughs) You can do that in small group tours at BoweryBoysWalks.com. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. You can live out your MasterChef dream. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.